You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. After noting the overt religious language of the Declaration of Independence with phrases like, Nature's God, the Creator, the Supreme Judge of the World, and Divine Providence, political scientist Samuel Huntington, in his 2004 book, Who Are We? The Challenges to America's National Identity, writes, The Constitution includes no such references. Its text is strictly secular, yet its framers firmly believed that the Republican government they were creating could only last if it was deeply rooted in morality and religion. Fifty years after the Constitution was adopted, Alexis de Tocqueville reported that all Americans held religion, quote, to be indispensable to the maintenance of Republican institutions. This opinion is not peculiar to a class of citizens or to a party, but it belongs to the whole nation and to every rank of society, end quote. Well, at least for Huntington, it appears simple, doesn't it? Religion and the Republic went hand in hand. To understand America, in other words, one has to understand its Anglo-Protestant essence. But Michael, as you and I well know, history is rarely as simple as it seems. And this is certainly true when we consider the historical question of religion in America, specifically the hot-button issue in our day of Christian nationalism. So, Michael, I know we're going to talk about that tonight, but we need some help with this uh, topic. So to help us in this conversation, we've enlisted the aid of a friend, a colleague, and an expert in the field, Dr. John Wilsey. Now, Dr. Wilsey is a professor of church history and philosophy at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a research fellow at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. And you have to know something of what he's written, and this uh, gives warrant for why we would ask him to be on this particular program. Wilsey is the author of One Nation Under God, an Evangelical Critique of Christian America. He's also written American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion, Reassessing the History of an Idea. And his most recent book, actually uh, a biography of John Foster Dulles, Secretary of State in the Eisenhower administration from 1953 to 1959. It's entitled God's Cold Warrior, The Life and Faith of John Foster Dulles. Well, John, we want to welcome you to Bead. It's so great to have you on this podcast. It's great to be with you all. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Michael, we, you and I have been talking about getting John on this podcast for some time. It's finally happened. Yep. I'm very glad to, to see that it is happening. And John, you know, we mentioned just three of your books. I mean, you've written so much. It would take the whole half hour tonight to go through, and we still wouldn't get through your CV. Uh, but you've been very uh, prolific of late. And in fact, you wrote an article that I was uh, very edified by, and I know Michael was too, but you wrote it at Public Discourse, and it was simply called Progressive Nationalism, I think. Right. And 
in that in that article, John, if you could help us here, you you set out. Well, first, you make it clear that nationalism discussions of nationalism are complex, and in some of the debates swirling around today, there isn't perhaps I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems that you would agree there isn't a historical understanding of the idea of nationalism. It's far more complex than some of the pundits today or uh, the people right. out there seem to make it sound. Uh, help us understand maybe nationalism historically and then Christian nationalism. What are we talking yeah. about yeah. when we talk about Christian nationalism? Well, I think in short, we can start by saying that nationalism is a, uh, I said in my, in my piece, that nationalism is, is a uh, description or a, a uh, construction of what the nation was, what the nation is, and what the nation aspires to be. And um, I also made this made this statement in my piece that nationalism is three dimensional. So it situates the nation in time, and in space, and in matter. So in time, it situates it in the terms of, the, of its past, its present, and its future. In in space, it it sets it, it situates it and it defines itself in, in terms of its land, uh, the place where the nation lives, the place where the nation buries its dead, um, the place where the nation has its national memories, um, and also the natural resources that the land uh, yields to the nation. And then in terms of matter, uh, what I argue there is that uh, Nationalism is defined by its people, as well as its relationship to people outside of, uh, of the nation. So in this regard, it's, I think it's a helpful way to think about how, the, uh, you know, when we think about nationalism, it's not, it's not going to be monolithic. And most importantly for our, for our purposes and for our interest, our, you know, um, our collective interest, nationalism is completely incomprehensible. Um, it's a it's a concept that has no grounding at all, without a direct reference to history. It is essentially historical, um, you know, for many reasons. So we can get into that. But but uh, the, the 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 conversations about Christian nationalism today um, are frustrating to me because uh, there seems to be an idea that Christian nationalism is something new. Something that has arisen and emerged out of American culture because of Trump, either because directly uh, of Trump and his policies and his statements and his bombastic, um, you know, approach to uh, political engagement, or um, a reaction against Trump. But nationalism has always been with Americans since uh, the colonial founding in the 17th century, and as a matter of fact. Um, most uh, most nations in the Western tradition, going going back to pre-Constantinian days, have uh, had some sort of um, um, way to identify their uh, ethnicity, their polity, in religious terms. So this relationship between religion and the nation, yes, is not a new thing since Trump. I mean, you take Tocqueville there in the middle of the 19th century, he's observing America. And would it be fair to say, and I'm, I'm smiling as I say this, he looked out on America and he saw a bunch of Christian nationalists. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Maybe that's yeah. what he saw the nation and religion as covering those same boundaries, as it were. Yeah. And, and so 
that's that's an, another important thing is that we when we talk about nationalism, are we talking about political nationalism or are we talking about religio philosophical nationalism? So political nationalism, if we're going to be talking about that, well, we're all nationalists, left, right, everybody's a nationalist. If you hold to the Constitution as the supreme law of the land, you're a nationalist. If you're glad that the Confederacy lost the Civil War, you're a nationalist. If you wish the Confederacy had won, you're a sectionalist. Or you're a Confederate nationalist. Um, but but you know, most people, if not all of us today, um, the vast majority of us would, would be political nationalists. Um, on the other hand, religious nationalism is also, you know, it takes lots, lots of different forms. It could mean that you think that America was founded as a Christian nation. It could mean that you think America is a new Israel. It could mean that you think God gave America a certain mission in the world. Or it could just mean that you believe that the church has a public voice in society. <laughs> so when, when we use the term Christian nationalism, we have to be precise about what we mean. Unfortunately, in the, in the discourse today, nobody ever defines the term. Hmm. And what do you think, John, people are mo- most concerned about? Uh, as they look, are they worried about a, a new Constantine? I mean, someone who's going to, yeah. uh, or is that, it, I, I think violence is what they're worried about, that the Christian nationalists are, are going to want to uh, overthrow the country and then enforce yeah. Yeah. Christianity. I, I think that's the popular Yep. I mean, concern. how often how often have you, you you and I heard that democracy is in is in trouble, that democracy mm-hmm. is threatened? In fact, Russell Moore in a recent Christianity Today piece that he wrote on January 6th, he said that Chris, that Christian nationalism is the number one threat to American democracy. I didn't read that. Wow, I didn't know that. Well, I mean, okay, so if you have a um, Star Wars historiography, and by that, I mean you've seen Star Wars. Michael hasn't seen Star oh, yeah. Wars because oh, yeah. all Michael does is <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 no. Yeah. He all he does is all he does is read 18th century English oh, books. No. <laughs> I, mean, I, I live with a, a group of uh, sci-fi aficionados, so yeah. okay. Oh, I assume so, you just lived no, in the no, past. No. You don't live in the future with yeah. Star Wars. Okay. So, so do y'all remember? Y'all remember the scene in in Episode Three when? Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin have had their titanic battle, their climactic battle at the end of the movie. And Obi-Wan has, has just about defeated him. He's, he's slashed him in half and he's laying there and he's getting eaten up by the lava. And remember what Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Anakin. He says, we were going to save democracy. You know, this, this notion that, that democracy in America needs saving. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, that kind of cr- uh, battle cry always emanates from the same people. It always emanates from the left. What do you think, what do you think um, Russell Moore the, means when he says Christian nationalism is the greatest threat to democracy in America? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that he's talking about in, – in, he's, he's obviously talking about the context of January 6th and Trump um, um, and his encouragement of the riots. Um, and in his mind, um, you know, the uh, the people that stormed the Capitol were there to overthrow the election, to overturn the election results, to reinstate Trump as president, and um, we would have a strongman um, that had been, um, you know, uh, that had retained his power by appealing to the uh, 
you know, by the power of the, of the mob. So in your opinion, and that's what he's yeah, talking so in your opinion, about. it would be um, kind of a, a definition of Christian nationalism that has been fed by the media in the last five yeah. to six years, you know, the lead up to the 2016 election, uh, the presidency of uh, Donald Trump, yeah. et cetera. Media have yeah. seized hold of this thing called Christian nationalism, which they have uh, painted yeah. in very variegated demonic colors. Well, it's yeah. interesting. Would you all agree? It's not just the media. I mean, it's there's there's acad- academic works. Yeah. That I, I don't know who's feeding who. Is it coming pre- from the media? Is it coming from the sociology departments around the country at some of our more elite institutions? Uh, but yeah. the drumbeat of an encroaching, very dangerous uh, Christian nationalism uh, are getting popular treatments and scholarly yeah. treatments. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so what I argued in that piece that came out last week was that that nationalism, Christian nationalism, religious nationalism, is a problem. It is a problem. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a problem for the right, um, but it's also a problem for the left. It's not just a problem for conservatives. And this is what Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry in their book, Taking America Back for God, explicitly argue in their, uh, in their introduction when they lay out, um, sort of set the table for the claims of their book. They make the claim that that Christian nationalism is a problem for conservatives, especially and particularly. And uh, I I completely disagree with that. It's also a problem for the left. John, can I tap into your expertise with uh, the founders? And let me just ask this question. Were were the founders, whatever, I'm not asking if they were Orthodox Christians or whatever. We we don't have time for that. Uh, But were they concerned about Christianity? If we just go, were, were they worried about religion or what was their posture toward religion, regardless of how devout they were? I mean, it, it varied, right? I mean, the founders you know, are a very diverse, mixed group of people. But I think, I think you can say in what they did have in common was that uh, they all believed that religion was vital, mm-hmm. was essential to the success of a republic. It was, it was essential for there to be a lively, flourishing religious life among the populace for a republic to survive. So they weren't um, afraid of it. I mean, you don't they, get that they, sense. They were afraid of an established church. Mm-hmm. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's why you have the First Amendment. Um, and the First Amendment is first, not by accident. And right. the religion clause of the First Amendment is not the first clause of the First Amendment by accident either. Um, there are five freedoms in the First Amendment, and religious freedom is the first, because religious freedom grounds all other all the other freedoms in the First Amendment. With, without religious freedom, then freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and freedom of uh, petition, they uh, they have no basis. Um, they don't, there's no permanence to them without religious freedom. So the founders do believe that religion is very important, but they are worried about an established church for the federal government. Now, of course, as you know, many of the state governments still retained uh, established churches well into the 19th century. Massachusetts is the last state to um, de- to disestablish. That was in 1831, but it's the last one. So you know, uh, all the way up until Tocqueville's visit, Massachusetts has a established church. But, but for the federal government, um, the, the founders did not want to see that because they were worried about uh, religious, um, you know, religious tests. They were re- worried about uh, 
you know, any kind of religious uh, tyranny coming emanating from the federal government. I'm so glad you brought that up, John, because what I often want to say to people that are really worried about this encroaching, as they defined it, Christian nationalism that's going to, you know, take over the government and establish Christianity as the religion of the land, I always kind of chuckle and say, well, there's this little thing called the First Amendment and this little thing called the Establishment Clause. So until I see a real threat to that, I mean, maybe I'm overly confident in, uh, you know, the genius of, you know, the branches of government and and how the Supreme Court will be a check on these things. But but that Establishment Clause is kind of a big deal. Yeah, right? it <laughs> is. It is a big deal. And um, I think what I think that there is a more uh, among I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what Pe- Perry and Whitehead believe about this, but. I think that there is a trend that we can we can you know see develop over the last twenty twenty five years or longer that on the left there is a desire to shut shut down the voice of religious people in the public square and you know my fear is that this appeal to Christian nationalism as a threat to democracy is the, is a way that the left finds to um, silence religious voices in the public square. That that's going to be that they think that they might have uh, some traction in pursuing that uh, agenda by by tapping into this fear of of Christian nationalism. Well, I would agree, Josh. I think you're right. And do you, do you agree the both of you with? Uh, it's often a phrase is turned where the the establishment clause it wasn't designed to foster freedom from religion, but freedom for religion. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, to your point about silencing religious voices, I mean, that was never the intent of the establishment clause. Uh, of course, I mean this, and you talk about the wall of separation, which of course that language not is not in the constitution, but Jefferson did use that language in personal correspondence. Uh, but it was, it was not to stamp out religion in the country, but to not establish it, you know, from the government. Right. Um, yeah, so you have disestablishment and you have the free exercise clause, and the two are logically entailed in one another. So with disestablishment, you will have free exercise that 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 results in the uh, flourishing <coughs> flourishing of religion in America. Uh, without disestablishment, you're you're not going to be able to have free exercise because you have an established church and. That church may uh, offer toleration, but that's not the same thing as free exercise. On the other hand, um, you know, free exercise, uh, in order for it to be, in order for religion to have that public voice, there, there has to be disestablishment. Um, so disestablishment and free exercise always have to go together. And in fact, when you look at the original drafts um, of the First Amendment as they proceeded through the House and the Senate votes in 17. 17- 89 through 1791, every single draft, and there were, I, don't, I can't remember exactly how many there were, I think 15 different drafts, something like that. Uh, but in every draft, you always had disestablishment and free exercise. In, no, in none of the uh, drafts that were debated in the Congress were these two separated or isolated one from another. Hmm. Well, Michael, you've seen some similar concerns uh in canada i mean this isn't unique to to america is it i mean i should say north america um, (laughs) includes canada of course but the united states 
any perspective from north of the border there? Is Christian nationalism a real concern? Yeah, well, I think I think um, the the way that uh, the term evangelical, for instance, has been interpreted by the media has become a problem. Mm. And um, mm. you do have uh, various individuals in the Canadian scene who would argue that Canada was founded as a Christian nation. And uh, obviously, we have foundational documents that go back to 1867 with the uh, the creation of the of Canada as a dominion. And um, again, you'd have the same sort of problem or the same sort of issue that you have in America. You have a diverse cast of characters. Uh, some of whom are definitely Christian. The very fact that you, it was called a dominion was taken from one of, from the Psalter. Uh, he shall have dominion from sea to sea, and that's actually part of our uh, national motto. Uh, that uh, the Latin version of that uh, phrase from the Psalter. Um, and by 1867, probably 75 to 80 percent of Canadians sat under the sound of the gospel. Uh, every week uh, in either Methodist, Presbyterian, Evangelical, Anglican, uh, Baptist churches. Uh, that would be true. That wouldn't necessarily be true of, of Quebec, where the Quebec Act had guaranteed uh, the freedom of the Roman Catholic Church to have worship, etc., etc., which had been, a, as you both know, a, a cause for the, uh, uh, the War of Independence or the Revolution. So we... Um, <clears throat> Uh, we have, again, uh, a failure on the part of some who look back on the founding of Canada. Um, uh, they see it as the founding of a Christian nation because there was a widespread Christian consensus. Um, I suspect, you know, if you asked your average Canadian, what does it mean to be a Canadian around 1900? Uh, Christianity would come in there somewhere. Um um, I'm not sure you, they would want to say they were Protestant. This would have been true in England. England defines herself, for instance, in the 18th century, uh, to go back to the 18th century, uh, to be English is to be Protestant. Um, I don't think Canadians ever would have d d defined themselves that way, but definitely the, the Christianity uh, would have been part of their understanding of what it meant to be a Canadian. Um, but that's a far, that's a far um, cry from Christianity was that Christianity was the founding charter of this nation as if the Mosaic law was taken over and transposed into Canadian law. Um, certainly our laws and the way that we framed the Confederation had Christian overtones, no doubt about it. But I, I, I would be dubious to think that the man who, I mean, our first prime minister, um, John A. Macdonald, uh, was certainly not a Christian. And I'm not even sure he professed to be one. Our second prime minister, uh, Mackenzie, was a, a Baptist, and he definitely did profess to be a believer. Um, so, <clears throat> again, we, we have, I think, because of the proximity and because of this to the United States and because of the significant influence of media personalities, Christian media personalities in Canada, I think the, this, this, there have been... What I've seen is a transposition of American, quote-unquote, Christian national arguments being taken into the Canadian scene without an awareness at all, as if there is a – that you can seamlessly do that. No understanding of the, the American founding with the documents of the 1780s, 1790s, nor of the Canadian founding of the 1860s, the difference between them. 
um, etc. Um, and because our nation was, you know, 80, 90 percent professing Christian, uh, that doesn't mean that we were founded legally and politically as a Christian nation. It also raises questions to me, too. Um, um, you know, what, what, what a nation was at its origins um, is a very important question. Um, but the reality we have to deal with is the reality on the ground now. Um, and where are we now in terms of our, you know, our commitment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and many, many would say even try the, the conversation of origins can be fruitless anyway. I mean, some are saying, but there is no essence of what it means to be say American. So Samuel Huntington was, was wrong. No, no, I, 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 I certainly wouldn't Anglo want to move in that direction. But I think there is pressure yeah. today, um, and it has. It's something we have to think through very seriously. I think the modern mindset is one of liquidity. That we can reinvent ourselves, um, not to bring in something that is completely outré, but you know, Madonna, for instance. Um, I'm not a. I don't follow Madonna at all, but she sees herself. Uh, every time she came out with an album in the 1980s and 90s, where she was reinventing her persona. And this is, this is, I think, our cultural mindset, you know, the transgender movement. Uh, hum- my self is, my external self is one thing. My real self is another. There's liquidity there. I can shape myself however I want. And uh, those sorts of things can't be dismissed when we think about politics either. Um, uh, do do are there people at work in our larger both our countries thinking that we can reshape politically who we are regardless of our origins, um, etc. So there's again all of this is I'm not trying to give any sort of answers here, but just the the, the complexity and why it's very helpful to have somebody like uh, Professor Wilsey uh, walk us through this because most of us you know are not familiar with, with this history. We, we need. What's interesting. I want to, I want to come back to what you said, Michael, but I also want for the record to let it be known. I had no idea on this episode, we would talk about star Wars and Madonna. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, this is quite, quite incredible from, yes. from you men. Yeah. Star Wars and Madonna. See, you never know. Tune into bead. You never know where these conversations <laughs> will go. Know. Keep you on your toes. Uh, but you bring up something, Michael, that I think is very profound that uh, John brought up in his recent article there at Public Discourse. Am I right, uh, John? When when you talked about this secular nationalism, it's a redefining of the country. Tell us a little bit what, what you mean by that and what you might see happening, to Michael's point, right here in our country now with a with a secular nationalism. Well, the scholarship on this is really fascinating. Um, so... Uh, one really helpful um, uh, book that your uh, listeners may be interested in is a book called Chosen Peoples by Anthony Smith. Sacred Sources of National Identity is the subtitle. It's, a, it's one of the best books I have ever read on nationalism. Anthony Smith is mm-hmm. is the like uh, you know something like the dean of nationalism studies. Where he was, he recently died. Um, but but he. Um, he, his thesis in that book is that religion is central to national identity and always has been in Western civilization. 
And he lays out three ways in which religion um, um, is manifest in nationalism. One is like in revolutionary Russia or revolutionary France, where you have um, a group of secularists overthrow um, traditional religion. Um, but for example, what you find in the Soviet Union is that um, even the Soviets who were atheistic cannot live without some kind of civil religion, some kind of transcendent ideas or norms. And so they attempt to build, some, re replace some of what they had overthrown into um, uh, sort of the civil religion of the Soviet Union in the 1960s under Khrushchev. Uh, the second way would be um, something like what you might find in England, um, where you have um, um, a state church and um, the doctrines of the faith are not uh, officially, uh, you know, or politically redefined. You still have the incarnation. You still have the hypostatic union. You still have the Trinity, and so forth. But but Christianity is employed for nationalistic purposes, and the church is sort of subordinated to the nationalistic agenda. And then thirdly, you have um, uh, what what Smith calls an ersatz political religion, where you have um, doctrines from a, a religion that are piecemeal isolated from each other and taken out of the context of a faith system and employed for nationalistic purposes. And this is what I think we find in American Christian nationalism, where you have doctrines like election, doctrines like, um, like mission, where the Great Commission is even employed to, you know, with, with um, America and American democracy as a frame of reference instead of the Lord Jesus and uh, a worldwide mission to, um, to baptize the nations and to uh, make disciples. Um, other things like uh, moral, regener uh, moral, moral regeneracy, uh, everything we do is right, you know, innocence. Um, sacred land, which is a deeply biblical uh, theological theme, um, that's appropriated to the nation. So you have this sort of, um, you know, Frankenstein's a monster. You have this composite of different doctrines that are removed and isolated from each other um, taken out of a, of the uh, context in w which they were originally um, composed and refitted and remade into this uh, freak um, of uh, not neither religion nor politics, but uh, composite of both to create something. And I think that's Christian nationalism as a, at its worst. You know, the idea that America is chosen by God, the, America, the idea that America is a new Israel, and in, in history, um, I have another piece coming out in a few weeks out of Law and Liberty. It's going to be about 5,000 words. But um, I walk through six different iterations of Christian nationalism from the 1600s to today. Um, and, uh, you know, at any point in American history, Christian nationalism is always changing. It's always being shaped by the contours of historical circumstance in which you find it. So... That's another issue with it. Somet and sometimes Christian nationalism is or orients the nation to the future. Other times Christian nationalism orients the, nature, the nation to the past. And most recently, that's what Christian nationalism has been doing. Looking back to the founders, the faith of the founders, the origins, you know, uh, wanting to recover those origins, getting America back to God, making America great again. Those, this, this is a way in which Christian nationalism today orients the nation to the past. But, you know, under Woodrow Wilson and FDR and John Foster Dulles, this is a progressive Christian nationalism that they embraced. 
that Christian nationalism emanated from the left. Um, it was advanced by liberal Christians, and it was progressive. It uh, envisioned the nation, uh, it oriented the nation to the future uh, as the hope of the world. And uh, so, as you can see, just in a brief con consideration of this, it's very complex. It's always different. It's a moving target. And we have to be precise about what we're talking about when we say Christian nationalism. John, that's so helpful. And <clears throat> you brought to mind, to me, I think the three of us, would you agree, uh, we're churchmen and we care ultimately about biblical theological truth, even as we're yeah. historians and are doing history. Yeah. Uh, but that third uh, understanding of nationalism, John, as you just spelled it out, where, where you're basically ripping rich biblical theological ideas, and then maybe, like you said, not a wholesale political uh, uh, um, program comes of them, but uh, I think of times in our history like Manifest Destiny. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, th I think of Reagan and the city on a hill. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, I mean, echoing Winthrop, but of course, Winthrop was deeply theological. That's another <laughs> program. Yeah. Reagan was not Winthrop. I mean, very different, but he was, yeah. in a way, hijacking yeah. Uh, the city on a hill for political purposes. Yeah. And I think a good way to maybe end this discussion, at least for tonight, it's an ongoing discussion, but to say that's what we want to work against. Yeah. Right. We want to stand as scholars, as academics, as professors uh, for the purity of what is richly biblical and theological and not see it get Absolutely. hijacked for yeah. political purposes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Well, Dr. Wilsey and Dr. Haken, so okay. good to be with you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. John, it's been fun. Well, thank you for making yeah. the time. So appreciate it. And I know everybody's benefited. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of Church History, Biblical Spirituality, Christian Living, and Theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.